0: I mean, the monsters are nothing shocking. Their career, people who have number one bestsellers, mm-hmm. and I, I've never hit number one. The problem is you can always yes. find someone to compare to.
1: What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, the only move that matters is your next one. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Wow. Welcome, AJ.
0: Thank you, Jenny. I am so excited to be here. I feel I should be interviewing you because you've given me so much wisdom.
1: Oh, my goodness. I can't wait to hear. I can't wait to hear because I'm kind of <laughs> flabbergasted.
0: I'm gonna repeat your wisdom back to you wow. so that you'll remember it. Well, I was
1: gonna say, welcome to your city. We're in your hometown of New York City, but I'm welcoming you to Midtown. We're recording in person, which is very it's rare for very me. Very
0: unusual, yes. And we'll see. If we both get COVID, we'll know it was a bad idea. I actually thought about that. I was Me too. Went, I was like, wait, should we be doing this? I but- know. Hopefully, it'll be such a great podcast that is worth us risking. Seriously. I know it will be.
1: I do too. I was in the bathroom, I was washing my hands, and I go, Are we just acting like this isn't a thing now. And it's so strange that something like a podcast conversation, both of us had a moment before hitting record where we're like, are we going to get terribly sick and fall ill for three weeks or three months as a result of... Right. Yeah.
0: There's that problem. conversation. Still don't go to places where there are a lot of people, but you yeah. are not a lot of people. You are just Thank Jenny. Thank
1: you. Yeah. I don't go to places where there are a lot of people in general, although we did have to crawl through like midtown crowds. This is kind of just south of (laughs) of But it's outside.
0: I'm okay with the outside.
1: Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you for starting with such kind words. It's very full circle because, as you mentioned to me when you emailed, we were kind of brainstorming what we could talk about. Astute listeners will know that you wrote the outsourcing kind of guest essay in the four-hour workweek that I read that I think that essay blew a lot of people's minds, like was a complete paradigm shift that came from that book. And we're going to talk about the delegation journey that you've been on since then. Yes, and I need your
0: advice on that.
1: Myself included. Good. But first I have to know, could you have even seen that coming, that writing that snippet for the book would have become what it became?
0: Well, here's the story, because it's a bizarre one. I was writing for Esquire magazine and I came up with this idea. What if I outsource my life? This was a long time ago. So Outsourcing was new and it was only banks and law firms were doing it and I was, I'm a writer so I was like, this sounds great but I don't have huge amounts of employees but maybe I could outsource my life. I hired this team of people in Bangalore, India who had never been personal assistants. It didn't exist. And I said, can you answer my phone for me and answer my email and argue with my wife? That was the funniest part. Oh, it was great. It turned <laughs> out great for everyone. They were much more polite than I was. And so I wrote it up and then it became a thing. It was weird that people were like, oh, this actually is a good idea. And Tim Ferris called me out of the blue and he said, I'm a first time writer. I'm writing my book. He said, it's called... Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit. That was the original title. That's right. And he said, I don't know how to write a book. A, can you give me some advice? And I was like, that's some good chutzpah there. I (laughs) appreciate that. And he said, also, can I just print your article as my chapter on outsourcing? And I was like, you know, he's going to sell 14 copies. He's a first-time writer. I'm not going to be a jerk and ask him for a bunch of money. And then cut to a year later, he calls me and he says... I just want to let you know my book is coming out next week and it's number one on Amazon. And I'm like, you mean number one in 20-something career (laughs) advice? And she's like, nope, number one on Amazon. And I was like, you are a genius. How did you do that first-time writer? So anyway, he taught me as well as I taught him. But it's funny. I am glad I gave it to him. I don't regret it at all because it worked out for me. he's got millions of followers and a lot of them know me from that. So the article ran in Esquire.
1: Did it take off? I mean, it was harder for things to go viral back then, back when we held magazines with our hands. But could you already tell that that article and that topic was going to become a bit of a sensation?
0: It definitely went viral in the like 15-year-ago version of viral. And I got on Good Morning America and all this. And what was weird was the people... In India, start the company that I had hired, which had previously only worked for businesses, started a VA arm called, I think it's Get Friday, I think it's still that. But yeah, like it actually spawned businesses. So it might be the most influential article I've ever written.
1: Seriously, because I think you were the one who made that connection. But I love how you go on these personal quests and you get a bug in your bonnet. You know, you get an idea, if I say that right. I always mess up aphorisms. (laughs) (laughs) A bee in your bonnet.
0: A (laughs) bee is a bug. So it's technically correct.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's like a bug In your ear and a bee in your bonnet. Oh, See, I always just amalgamate these things. So, like, it's now a bug in your bonnet. You're
0: creative.
1: (sighs) I just, I don't know. It's my puzzler mind that just (laughs) mashes things together. But I love how you get this kind of itch and you go on a quest. And the thing with the Esquire that became in 4-Hour Workweek article is you really showed people the connection that any of us. It was almost like what Uber did for transportation, where I remember when early days, a friend would be like, yeah, I push a button and a black car rolls up. And we thought, oh, that's only for the richest people on earth. And the same thing with a personal assistant, that would have been for the 1% back when you wrote that article. Nobody would have dared to dream that each one of us could
0: have our very own personal assistant to get help with adulting. It was not expensive. And this is what I wanted to ask you. I know we're here to talk about my other book, but. What happened was I was one of the first, you know, I sort of broke this idea and then I fell off and I went from being one of the best delegators in the world to now I'm one of the worst. Hmm. And actually reading your book has inspired me to try again and you've given me a lot of tips, but I find it, and I want to know your opinion, I find it hard to delegate because there's the problem of perfectionism there's the problem of i need someone to delegate my delegating to <laughs>
1: yes you know i I'm like i that. don't have
0: time to figure out what to delegate but and you've given me awesome tips on how to do it but have you also struggled with that
1: oh, 100% and i go through waves with it and so i'm so glad you brought this up because Right. People might think that once you write an article or you run an experiment like that, that you just brush your hands and you have it solved. And it's not really the case. And it does go in waves. And I find that there are times I'm really inspired to build and maintain the infrastructure of delegation and outsourcing. I guess those are sort of related ideas, not necessarily one in the same. And then there are times where I get fatigued from it almost. And right now I'm in a period of team sort of transition and I keep stripping things away and I keep simplifying and in doing so, I'm taking more on my plate. But I just had a conversation this morning with Julian Smith that will air on the Free Time podcast, where I told him that software is my first employee. <laughs> like <laughs> software is the first place I look because it's not the same kind of hands-on management that delegation involves.
0: And by software, you mean like automating? Yeah,
1: automation, documentation, things that I know are going to make things much easier Checklists. without a person involved. Yes, writing everything down. Like, this is so simple, but just keeping a record of doctor's appointments and vet appointments and keeping track in one place so that it's much easier to know when the next one's needed. I find the job role as of manager doesn't energize me that much. Interesting. Like I much more enjoy just kind of solo creative right. projects and playing around like what we're doing now. What do you think for you, having written the kind of starter piece on this for so many people, what roadblocks did you run into after that where, you know, the knowing, doing gap, like you could know what's possible with delegating and outsourcing, but then there must have been a part of you and you're a super smart guy that it wasn't that you didn't know what to do, but some aspect of it must have been experiencing friction somehow with it.
0: There were a couple of points of friction. One, which I think is misguided, I felt sometimes kind of like a jerk giving these really boring tasks to Mm. people. And I'm like, you know, what kind of a privileged asshole am I? (laughs) But it's a complicated uh, issue because they were delighted to have the work. So I don't know where I stand on that still. I think that the one way to reframe it, which I learned from you, is that you're not freeing up time to, you know, watch – sitcoms or Netflix, you can free up time to do something even more productive. How can you earn more in that hour that you free up than you are spending on outsourcing? So that I think is a good reframe that is going to motivate me. But yeah, part of it was guilt. Part of it was that like you, I don't love managing, especially my research I wish I could outsource some of my research Mm. because it is super time consuming. And yet I am glad I can't because research for me takes me down so many unexpected byways. And I don't think that, you know, what interests me may not interest other people. And they just wouldn't follow the same trails and come up with the same material that I did. So it's I find that very hard to... Outsource, But like you suggested, make a list. Every time I'm doing something that could be outsourced, write it down so I have a whole list before I go approach someone.
1: Yeah, because you're so creative. And I want to talk about, you shared in one of our author calls, how you generate ideas. And I'm so curious about your process. I do think that's what makes your writing so unique, is that you are true journalist in the sense that you don't just hire and outsource your research. Okay, so the new book's on puzzles and problem solving in games and stuff. But you don't just hire a team, have them basically ghost write the book, and then you put your name on it. You actually go on these adventures. You go on a quest for two years, and you pick up these little tiny nuggets about being in somebody's home or what they say on a Skype call. And I, I think that adds so much depth and richness well, thank
0: you, to Jenny. what you do. Yeah, I definitely could not outsource a lot of my job because My books tend to be these first person adventures. So for this book on my love of puzzles, I went to Spain and competed in the World (laughs) Jigsaw Puzzle Championship, which was a disaster, but a delight at the same time. Or I went to the headquarters of the CIA to see one of the most famous unsolved puzzles ever. And that, yeah, you can outsource. And I'm very flattered you think I'm able to pick out interesting details, because that is something I'm I'm very aware of while it's going on. I sort of have to have two minds. I have to be in the experience and experiencing, but I have to be also looking and saying, oh, that would make a good detail. That would make a good sentence. And even trying to structure it, like how is this going to look in a chapter? What's it going to be the beginning and what's going to be the end, even as I'm experiencing it? So I have that sort of dual mind. Because writing a book is a big puzzle. Mm-hmm. How many books have you written now? I've written six. or It wow. depends how you count them. Some of them are like, you know, half books.
1: And I've heard people say both ways, that it gets easier. And some people say, no, it doesn't. It's just as hard every time. <laughs> What's your take? Because it is a sort of, it's a big, complex thing. A book is just this, I don't know, Is something about the scope of it really stretches the human mind to the edges of trying to organize right. that much complexity and hold it and know how to structure it.
0: So, has it gotten easier for you? It has gotten a little easier, mostly because of what you said, which is structure. I will not start a book unless I have a very clear structure and the skeleton that I can then fill in with the flesh. For instance, I wrote a book about trying to be as healthy as possible. And I knew I wanted to write a book about health for many years, but I didn't know the structure. It just seemed overwhelming. But then, I don't know when, maybe during one of my daily brainstorming sessions, I said, well, what if I break it down into body part, like even (laughs) absurdly specific body parts? So you've got the, you know, the stomach health can be your diet and the lung health, heart health can be exercise. But what about hand health? Like there are people who specialize in hand exercises and, you know, what about eye health? You know, all of these unexpected body parts to balance the more expected ones and that is what cracked it open for me and allowed me to write it. So as long as I have a structure and this puzzle book is about my love of puzzles and what allowed me to write it is there are so many Types of puzzles I never even thought about that I could explore. So everyone knows jigsaws, crosswords, sudoku, but there's also Japanese puzzle boxes and there's secret ciphers from Victorian newspapers. There's just so many things to explore and I could break it up into those sections.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I love reading. They're so funny about how you're addicted to spelling bee. And, oh, oh gosh. are you? Are you well, a spelling bee no. fan? No, I kind of put it down. And My dad loves spelling bee, and he works on it all week. And as I read your book, I took screenshots of the book, and I sent it to him. And I said, look, there's genius level and this Easter egg of Queen Bee. If you get Did everything. he know about it? Queen uh, Bee? He didn't know about Queen wow. Bee because he does it by <laughs> hand. He doesn't use oh. the app, so there would be nothing that flashes and goes, right, you right. are a Queen Bee. But my dad, he doesn't stop until he gets genius level every week. And I asked him, your book sparked a great conversation where I got to ask Thank him you. about his love of spelling deep. And my dad said to me, I have a system. And I thought it was so interesting how he, talking about structure, he has a system. So he has it out. It's by his desk. He comes back to it. He'll do things like write all the letters across the x-axis and the y and then make one of those grids and then try to oh, match words. He'll, he'll go it. clockwise. He'll go counter. And so just hearing about tips and tricks that our mind devises to crack a puzzle right, this is very interesting because it does apply to writing a book pivoting, career change, running a business, delegating,
0: it's all a puzzle. Right. I love that you say that. And that is the way I tried to reframe my book, because I do think puzzles, there's something more fun about solving a puzzle than tackling a problem. And in fact, Quincy Jones, the great musician, says his quote is, I don't have problems, I have puzzles. And I love that quote. It's so good because... It is so motivating. Problems, to me, if I hear that word, it's like, oh, they're intractable. They're a pain in the ass. Whereas puzzles is like, oh, this is a challenge. I'm going to solve it. It's solution-oriented. I'm going to figure this out. So even just a simple reframe like that can make a huge difference.
1: I agree. Like just turning things, I talk about this in pivot of just Turning a challenge into a question mm-hmm. creates the puzzle. It's almost like by instead of just stopping at a dead end, like, oh, I don't know how to do this, it's how can I learn or how can I improve right. or just turning it into an inquiry. Yeah. I love David White calls them beautiful questions. They're the kind that you have to live with. You can't answer in the moment. It's not just a math problem. Right. You have to wild live it. Wild problems,
0: I've heard yes. also. Wild oh. puzzles. We should call them wild
1: puzzles. A.J. Jacobs, the wild puzzler. (laughs) I picture you dancing on tables
0: at 3 a.m. I like it. I am a wild and crazy puzzler. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. You bring up Pivot, and I want to pivot for a second because (laughs) I thought there are so many overlaps between our work, and one of them is in The Puzzler. My book is all about pivoting your mind. So, being cognitively flexible, not necessarily changing your job, but it's the same muscle of being able to, because to solve a problem, you can't go with your first thought. Your first thought is usually wrong. I mean, on purpose, these people design it so that (laughs) you need to look at it from all angles. And I'll give you an example. There's some very, very tricky British crossword puzzles. They love to mess with your mind even more than American crosswords. So you'll get clues such as "gegs." That's the entire clue. G-E-G-S. This kind of thing drives me nuts. Yeah. That's why I don't
1: do crosswords, but I admire the people who do love them. <laughs> this just drives me nuts. But well, go ahead. it will drive you
0: nuts, <laughs> but hopefully in a good way. Hopefully yeah. you'll get the aha moment, which is what we want. But yes, so... The clue was just those four letters, G-E-G-S. And I was like, what the heck is a gag? And I even Googled it, which I don't like to do. The airport in Portland, is airport code is gag. So is that anything? No. It was only when I walked away, which is also another important tip. I walked away, took an hour off, came back, and I was like, maybe it has nothing to do with the word gag. And I had to pivot my mind. Well, it's actually the letters. E-G-G-S but they're scrambled so it's scrambled eggs so that's the answer to the clue is scrambled eggs so that is a totally different way of looking at the puzzle and that is I think the secret not just to cracking puzzles but to cracking life and like you talk about in your books Mm. we'll be right back just after this
1: It's so interesting, that connection between, well, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, he's like probably second to you and Tim Ferriss, one of the most quoted authors, like every book is going to cite flow. But what I find so interesting, he says that we find a flow state at the intersection of challenge and skill. Mm. And we need to be right at the edge of our skill level, not too much, and we get frustrated We have to have just enough skill to meet the challenge, and then the challenge has to stretch us just enough. If it stretches us too much, we might quit or give up. And so this dynamic of challenge and skill in that intersection and what you describe with the best puzzles involving this other ingredient, which is insight. And right. I love how you quote oh, what's their name, the Japanese um, Makikaji. Yes,
0: this man, he is called the godfather of Sudoku because he popularized Sudoku.
1: Yes, and who just articulated the whole crux of your book, which is with three little punctuation marks question mark, arrow,
0: exclamation point. I loved it. I went to go see That's him. That's a tattoo. Oh, uh, yeah, that is a good tattoo. If I were going to get one and he summed up all of puzzles on the whiteboard by drawing those three symbols, question mark, arrow, exclamation point, point. and he explained the question mark is when you get to a situation and you're baffled, and then the arrow is the struggle, the figuring out, the trying different methods, and the exclamation point is that aha moment. And it's not just puzzles, that's the structure of many stories, you know, conflict, resolution, so it applies to all sorts of things in life, And the other important piece of wisdom that he imparted was that you have to embrace the arrow. You have to embrace that middle part, the struggle, and start to enjoy it because you may never get to the exclamation point.
1: And the exclamation point is so short in comparison to the journey. That's a great point. It's funny because the way I say this in Pivot is that the punctuated moments of success, Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) and they
1: are, they're short compared to the process of working toward them. Right. Yeah. So you were saying it. I just like how you've really described that it's much more rewarding when we solve puzzles where there's a shift in paradigm.
0: I do love that. And
1: that's where I think life change is so interesting. I mean, I met my husband walking down the street opposite directions, and I say, when I tell the story, it's as if the universe spun on its axis. And I know that's cliche, but it was a true, legitimate New York City meet-cute. We're walking opposite ways, and I saw his sparkling brown eyes, and time slowed, and it was as if the whole universe just shifted in that moment. And as soon as he passed, and then all of a sudden, everything was different. After that, And it's true because I ended up marrying this person and I never even thought I would get married.
0: Just what happened?
1: I know you've told him before, but what happened after the... So he is a painter and he and his friend were looking for overalls. And I joke that funny that his request to the universe was, I'm looking for overalls. Or at least let's say the universe planted in his mind, you are looking for overalls. But then the wink of it was (laughs) there was a girl in overalls, you know, because he didn't want a girlfriend at that time. But sure enough, I'm walking. I was almost home, 20 feet from my apartment. He mouthed the words, nice overalls. He didn't say it, but he mouthed it. And as I passed, I always like to be polite. So I turned around and I said, thank you so much. And then he and his friend yelled because we had passed already. They had yelled like, where'd you get them? And I'm like yelling, G -G (laughs) (laughs) jeans. And so we came back together and then started talking
0: and That is a great story. Yeah. And then
1: I sat on a bench. I was like, I texted my friends. I said, overalls are the new Tinder because this is the (laughs) second time that I had met someone while wearing these. And I said, my overall ROI on these, like, I was all about the puns (laughs) because they were really expensive at a time where I should not have spent $400 on overalls. Wow. I know. Wow. But they had, they landed me a date the week prior. I was browsing in McNally Jackson Books on Prince Street. And I was browsing, and that guy just came over and was like, Do you want to get tea? Okay, sure. These overalls, they're like magic. <laughs> Too bad they don't fit anymore. <laughs> Friggin' pandemic. Oh, I'll never get into- The real puzzle is how I'm going to fit these overalls again. That is oh, fantastic. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so why did I get on that tangent? Oh, just kind of seeing things in a new light, the shift, the insight
0: around it. And seeing overalls are not usually considered like I know. magnets. So that's a good shift right there. These are form-fitting overalls. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, yeah. put
1: it that way. <laughs> oh, my goodness. At the time of this recording, I'm on a Duolingo streak. So I go on and off with Duolingo. And I'm two-thirds of the way through learning Arabic. Wow. I don't know if it counts in anywhere near the realm of puzzles or what you describe in your book, which I did read. I loved your book. Thank but you. But as I was reading your book, I was thinking about my daily Duolingoing and how well they gamify. First of all, they gamify language learning like no other. It's incredibly sticky. But particularly learning Arabic is so interesting because it's kind of a puzzle, and especially the more complex the sentences get, I'm having to process all these characters that I'm not used to. Oh,
0: yeah, that's like a code, sure.
1: Yeah, and it's so kind of feel that every day I'm kind of cracking the code, and it's incredibly rewarding. And I think that's partly what makes language learning so sticky and compelling is that it actually unlocks part of the universe. It unlocks part of the world. Right, People communicating ideas, even the way things are phrased in Arabic is so beautiful oftentimes compared to English. And I'll just give one example. One time, Michael, my husband told me, he said, I have roses in my cheeks. And I thought, Oh, I have roses in your cheeks! Oh, and he was saying he's blushing, <laughs> and Michael's fluent. He grew up speaking fluent English, French, and Arabic. So it's not like oh, he didn't know how to say blushing in English, but for a moment he could only well, recall the, the Arabic. Arabic. <laughs> and look how much more beautiful! That I have roses on my cheeks that compared to a, the translation.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: So where does language learning fit with? this notion of puzzles. Well,
0: I had not thought about it, but you're absolutely right. It is a puzzle in so many ways. And it's like a code unlocking a code and a revelation. And there is some science that puzzles are good for your brain for slowing down cognitive decline. But it's not just puzzles. It is any intellectual activity that keeps you challenged and the other big one that people talk about is learning languages. So they are very linked in that way.
1: It's almost, it kind of reminds me, I know jigsaw puzzles weren't your favorite. Maybe you came to like them a little more.
0: I did. I did. I'm a convert.
1: I think of language learning is like this ginormous jigsaw puzzle and you can only fill in the edges. And if you know 10 words, that's better than zero words. And I know not all Jigsaw's, we don't always start with the edges, as I learned <laughs> from your book. But it is this sense that slowly but surely you plug in one tiny piece and one tiny piece. Oh, and that yeah, that's there nice. is a moment of escape velocity, which I'm not quite there with Arabic, but where you're like, I can communicate. I <laughs> in Spanish, I can speak to a taxi driver about existential ideas for wow. an hour or two. And that makes me happy. I'm that's very awkward big. and I sound terrible, but Hey, we're able to cover some ground. Wow. That's
0: amazing. I love that. I find that word puzzles in particular have made me so much more aware of language, of the English language, and have changed the way I read the news because word puzzles are all about one word having multiple meanings. So like Mm. the word trunk, is it the trunk of an elephant? Is it the trunk of luggage? Is it the trunk of your torso? And you have to look at it from all different angles. And it makes you realize the English language is quite slippery. There are these what my friend calls them suitcase words that have multiple, multiple meanings. You can pack into one word. And it makes me a little more, I wouldn't say suspicious, a little more aware in a good way of how language can be manipulated. Like the word freedom can mean tons of different things. So just saying the word freedom is sort of like a Pavlovian reflex. Oh, that's good. Freedom is good. But, you know, there are tons of ways that it has drawbacks and tons of uses that are not so good. So anyway, that has been a huge boon to my life is just being more aware of language.
1: That reminds me of like PACS, political action committees, where they'll be like, you know, the American society of freedom and beauty. And it's like, oh, we're the gun lobby, you know, or whatever <laughs> it is, just how they name things, the word exactly, mishmash.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Like all of those um, industry lobbying groups, right. like you say, they all sound great. Speaking of play on words, I love puns.
1: I love them. I love a good pun. Good I appreciate you, them. Yeah. Why do people rag on puns so much?
0: Well, it's interesting. I became a little more of a convert of puns because I was a little snobby about puns because <laughs> people do say... They're wonderful. <laughs> it's punishing. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, people would always say it's the lowest form of humor. But some of the puns that you run across in the puzzle world, because they are obsessed with puns, are just so sophisticated and ridiculous that I have to admire them. And like I say, they have this bigger lesson, which is that words are slippery and you have to really look at them from many different angles. So I am much more pro-pun than I used to be.
1: Speaking of words, I want to talk about idea generation and how you solve the puzzle of what to write next, because a book and your quests in particular that become your books are a big commitment. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your daily brainstorm and idea generation practices. And then how the heck
0: do you puzzle out what you want to tackle next? Great question. Like you said, I love having 15 minutes and I still do. I did it this morning. Fifteen minutes that I allot. I turn off my computer and my iPhone and I just brainstorm. And it could be about anything. It could be about book ideas, article ideas. A lot of the time it's just free form. So I'll look around and I'll see something like, you know, maybe I see a snowman outside my window and I'll think, what can I do with that? How can I play with that idea? Maybe it's a snow woman or a snow non-binary person or instead of a pipe, they have a vape. Now, as you can see, 99% of these ideas are crap and they are never going to be used (laughs) for anything. But I find it so helpful because I do believe to a certain extent, the brain is a muscle and that the more you're able to be creative, the more creative you'll become, the more new pathways in your brain that you're able to create, then you're not going to get stuck in the same kind of thinking. So I do honestly think it helps me enormously, even if 99% of those ideas are never going to be used. And then there is that 1% that is used. And as to your second part of the question, how do I know which one? It's a little bit of a challenge. I would say two things when I keep thinking of an idea, like two weeks later, three weeks later... That is a hint that maybe it's important. Another is I love to tell people ideas and look at their phases. Now you can tell when their eyes light up or they kind of blaze over. I will say that I don't have a perfect record because, for instance, this book only came about because I was writing a completely different book for three months. I had a contract for a whole other book. That I still think is an interesting idea. And I'll just tell you briefly, it was all about facts. How do we know what we know? The whole post-truth crisis. So it was fact-checking my life. How do I know the world is round? How do I know the New York Times is more reliable than Newsmax? How do I know my wife loves me? She says she loves me, but I'm not in her mind. (laughs) And it was an interesting idea, but it came down to the structure that we talked about. I didn't have a good structure on it and I felt lost and overwhelmed. And my agent knew that I loved puzzles and he said, why don't you just devote a little time to thinking about some pivoting? Wow. <laughs> nice think,
1: product placement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so that is how this came about. And once I thought about and figured out the structure, and I convinced the editor to let me switch topics completely. And it was a much more pleasant two years of research. Oh, my
1: gosh. Can you imagine just the, right, the vibe and the milieu of your life, like diving into facts and truth and the current climate versus puzzles, this passion
0: that you have. Exactly. And puzzles can touch on the deep and profound things too. But yeah, this I would have had to spend time with a lot of conspiracy theorists and flat earthers. And it would have been fascinating, but also stressful. Birds,
1: people who don't believe in birds, you know. I love the
0: the birds aren't real movement. That is a great one. Oh
1: my gosh. It's really wild. And isn't it funny how, as with the puzzler, like, it's right under your feet? I think that's something that I found with Pivoting and people who I spoke to where they said, in hindsight, everything was leading me to this, or it seems so obvious. I'm sure that's with any individual puzzle you're working on, but also you landing on this topic for the book. It's right under your nose. You're working on puzzles every morning. (laughs) It's so true. You know, but it's so close, sometimes it's hard to see.
0: Yeah, it was funny. Someone once interviewed me a few years ago and said, you know, what are your hobbies? What are your passions? And I was like, I don't know. I don't think I have any. But I had puzzles. They were so part of my life that I didn't even consider it, like you said. I find this hobby question so funny because I'm like,
1: I don't know just silence, reading, sleeping. <laughs> do these count? You know, like going out to heat in New York. When you spoke about idea generation before, you were giving these kind of rules of thumb about what you do. And, you know, you shared things like alter something that exists, do the opposite, look for the opposite or the inverse, push things to the extreme. So when you're sitting there every morning. Are you literally looking around and you see what's in your environment or does something drop from the sky into your mind? And then once the thing drops, like the snow person, example, or something conceptual, do you have these almost like calisthenics, these little exercises? What's the opposite? What's the inverse? What's the extreme?
0: I've never gone into so much detail, but you're absolutely right. And I think I want to teach my sons this because I found it so helpful. First of all, I do sometimes try to have magazines, old style magazines around like The Week and I'll flip through it and I'll get to an article, I don't know, about windmills. And then that's a spark for me to start brainstorming about that. And weirdly, yes, I do sometimes very consciously employ these like you said, to think about it upside down, think about it backwards, take it to the extreme. That's kind of how the outsourcing came out. I was like, what can I do with outsourcing? What if I outsource everything in my life? Like push it to the extreme, not just you know outsourcing my low end work, outsourcing my reading bedtime stories to my kids. So those ones you mentioned, combining it with other ideas, You mentioned some of the great ones.
1: I got them all from you. Took them right from you. They're just for something you said. And I thought the interesting thing about, let's say, outsourcing, I don't know that anyone else would have thought to outsource a fight with their wife. I don't know how you have this sense of humor or the level of detail, I guess, that the heuristic in that case would be something completely unexpected. We're back to the puzzle and the paradigm shift because right. what you did there was really work an angle that I just don't even think, like, I don't even think Tim Ferriss would have thought to outsource a fight with his girlfriend, quote unquote. <laughs> but you did. Like, your mind worked in a kind of tricky, sneaky way where that's really outside of the scope. But then it made us all laugh. It Thank kind Thank of,
0: you, Jenny. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is, yeah, that I'm sure, I don't even remember, but I'm sure I did 10 things and nine of them didn't work. But the one with outsourcing my argument to my wife, that worked spectacularly. So that's (laughs) the one I'm going to write about.
1: And I guess it makes for a good story to tell. I mean, the book project where everyone is your cousin. Right. Which, by the way, your editor for this project has the same name. I won't say it on the podcast, but the same exact name as my sister-in-law. And I just thought, There it is. Like, we're all somehow connected.
0: Wait, the same, like, first and last time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How has your experience been with editors? Because I know you've done some traditional publishing and some on your own, right?
1: At every book project, while my dad is always very hands-on editing, because we both, just like you, love words, love puzzles, love problem-solving. My dad is really good about concision we have a shortcut. See, it's too many words to even say Occam's razor, but Occam's razor is like the simpler, the better. You know, if something can be said in fewer words, it should be. And that efficiency is the essence of Occam's razor. So my dad will just write Occam now. And he literally, there were all these places in the book where he would eliminate three words at a time and just put an adverb. So instead of, I will go to the store, it's like, I'm Going. I don't know. Anyway, just some.
0: I silly love that. Example, yes. But. I'm going to have him read my
1: book. <laughs> you should. He's ruthless, which is a good thing. Diana's he says, good. Do you want a gloves off edit? And that, that means that he is not going to hold back. He's going to spelling bee that thing. He is going to look at it with the closest read and the red ink, like every page, but it will be so much better for it. He catches everything. And you know what? The mind of a puzzler, because he's very well read and knows factoids about absolutely everything, he catches things no editor would ever catch because there's just the depths of sort of the edges of knowledge or how things work or metaphors, science, biology. So he catches all kinds of stuff that nobody he else finds. Ma- amazing. Yeah. All
0: right, I'm in. Just
1: as a test, run a manuscript by.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say I love your writing. And I can't remember if this was you or one of your guests, but I quoted you this morning or I'm one of so your guests, honored wow because it was such a concise way of saying it which was compare leads to despair i love that i
1: know that i can't take the credit i do say compare and despair a lot it's and great
0: yeah i feel that it happens to rhyme but it also happens to be true do you experience compare and despair oh yeah Comparison is the thief of joy, is I know, what that's I've another always another good one. But yes. I actually like compare and despair. Like that's stickier. Oh, yeah, no, it is terrible. I have to. What's uh,
1: your comparison monster? I think of these like the Monsters Inc. monsters. Like they're generally friendly, but they're just kind of like hovering around causing a ruckus. Oh, yeah. So well, I your- don't think
0: they're generally friendly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I that's hate them. True.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I try to befriend mine and just say, you. Well, that's a good way yeah. to do it. I mean, I can tell you. What the monsters are, and then how my strategies for trying yeah. to focus on them. I mean, the monsters are nothing shocking, they're career people who have number one bestsellers, mm-hmm. and I, I've i never hit number one. The problem is, you can always yes. find someone to compare to, I so know,
1: especially now where everything's global and hyper connected, right? Like, I'm it'll sure, only take a few seconds,
0: yeah. Jeff B., I'm not in his mind, but. He's probably really pissed that Elon Musk has $8 billion more than he I thought he does. about
1: that. I actually thought about that because, like, in Duolingo, I battle with these people. <laughs> it makes you weirdly competitive. And it's like, oh, Jeff just took your number one spot in the Bronze <laughs> League. And then you're like, what are you doing, Jeff? I'm going to get you. And then it's, like, very competitive. But I find myself getting sort of antagonistic with Jeff and, like, oh, I'll show you Jeff. And then, like, kind of working the psychology of when I'm going to use my turbo boost. It's really weird because a turbo
0: boost. Oh, it. yeah, that's hilarious. I don't have
1: this side of me outside of it, but it's genuine. And I thought, I bet Jeff Bezos was like, "I'm going to get you, Elon." Right.
0: You know? It's definitely a double-edged sword competition. It sometimes is really great for motivating. Yeah. But it can also make you miserable. Yeah. I will say one that has been good for me because it's very low-level competition. It's more support group type competition because I decided at the beginning of the year that my fitness goal would be I had been doing the 10,000 steps, which there's no real science behind. It could be 7,000, 8,000, but it made me feel like I had a nice goal. So 10,000 steps, but I was getting bored of it. I happen to, from my book on health, I have been walking on my treadmill while I type my emails for many years and I do it at an angle. So I'm sort of walking up a hill and it keeps track of your vertical climb. And it turned out I was walking about a thousand feet a day with like the height of the Eiffel Tower. And I looked it up and I was like, I think that I could walk to space in the the year, in 2022, I could walk to space because it's only 330,000 miles to the edge of space. So I could be like Bezos and you know, I don't even need a rocket. And I put it on Facebook and it was delightful because I got dozens of people who were like, "I want to walk to space too." So we have this Facebook <laughs> group of all these people and then there's a spreadsheet and we're all semi competing but semi cheering each other on as we walk to space. And I think that what I also like about it is there is research on when you try a new, instead of just having the same goals all the time, if you stretch, if you pivot to an (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So good. So good. Yeah. Okay.
1: (laughs) Stretch, a pivot. Yeah. Well, the problem is now the word became totally ubiquitous. Like we can't not use it. Right. You were
0: were ahead of the curve. That was great. Just a little
1: bit. And and Lean Startup, because they talk about pivoting. I wanted to be What's the Lean Startup for People? So we have to give Eric Reese full credit. Okay.
0: Can I tell you, I have written about my favorite pivot in the business world. Oh, yeah? Which one? My first book was reading the encyclopedia. So I read like the history of everything. And I read the history of this guy named Welch, who was a Presbyterian minister, I believe. Anyway, he was very religious, but he was also anti alcohol So he decided he wanted to make non-alcoholic communion wine. So people could be religious, but they wouldn't have to drink wine when they went to mass. And he made this grape juice that was non-alcoholic. And maybe it sold a little, but no one really cared. And so then his son came along and his son totally pivoted. The organization is like, forget this wine business, let's sell it to kids as a treat. Grape juice is like a little treat. And that's how Welch's became the grape juice
1: kings. Whoa. Amazing.
0: Yeah, Never that knew. was smart, right?
1: That is smart. I find these stories very interesting and looking at, exactly, well, there we go again, just a paradigm shift, looking at a problem from another angle. So, we were talking about compare and despair, and you said you had some solutions or some ways that you get out of that particular thinking trap. What else has worked for you when you find yourself falling into that?
0: Well, I guess two come to mind. I'm sure I have others that are going to come to mind later. But the first is I do love that story about Holland. Do you know that story? No. which one? It's a fable. It's not real. It was written by a woman whose kid, I think, had Down syndrome, but it was a fable where she talked about, imagine if you plan on going to Italy, and you know, you've know you planned this trip for years, and you've mapped out all of these wonderful restaurants and gondolas that you're going to go on, and you get on the plane, and it lands in Holland instead. You got on the wrong plane, and there's no way to get out of it for a week, or maybe you can't afford to go. And she says, so the key is... Learn to love Holland. There are some (laughs) wonderful things about Holland. It's not Italy. Maybe it's a little duller. Maybe it's not as exciting and sexy, but Holland has its own charms. If you end up in Holland, learn to love Holland.
1: Right. And then maybe some completely surprising and unexpected thing will happen in Holland. So we will change the trajectory of your life. You don't know.
0: Exactly. That wasn't going to happen in Italy. It could be the greatest thing that happened you. You never know. And then
1: sometimes I think about, I know not everybody believes that things happen for a reason because there's so many terrible things that happen on the planet. But we don't know what we missed. Like Michael recently traveled to Beirut and he, gosh, so many flight delays and missed a flight, missed a connection, yada, 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 lots of delays and drama. And you can complain about all that, which is complainable. You know, it's an annoying situation. And I had that happen recently, too. On the other hand, who knows? Maybe you were going to sit next to someone who had COVID on the original flight. And the fact that you missed it was a good thing. So even though you got in 12 hours later, there's some missed thing. You know, I don't know. We can never know. I love the parable, the Zen parable. We'll see. You cannot judge a situation.
0: Is that the one good or where bad? the kid breaks his leg yeah. and the horse? Yeah, I love that the one, farmer. too.
1: The farmer. Yes, exactly. I always forget the exact details, but like his son is riding the horse, breaks his leg. How terrible. We'll see. Military comes to recruit. The son can't go. How wonderful. We'll see. The son falls ill, you know, and so on, so on. There's right. always a we'll see mindset. And I love what you said with the Holland story of appreciate where you did end up with what is here.
0: Yeah. I mean, someone once asked me, because my kids are now teenagers, and they had just had twins, and I have twins. And they said, is there a light at the end of the Mm. tunnel? And I said, not really, not for (laughs) me, but I've gotten used to the light in the tunnel. Sometimes that light in the tunnel can be quite nice, It could be fluorescent. So you got to, yeah, appreciate the light in the tunnel as well as out of the tunnel. I
1: mean, that seems like a perfect response of parenting in general. I'm not a parent. I don't have kids, but like the tunnel changes right because i've heard parents say each age group brings the next set of challenges and right. problems you can't even imagine when you were in the previous one so you might <laughs> get through one tunnel just to have the next tunnel start
0: exactly and so yeah it's like we said the arrow between the question mark and the exclamation point you gotta learn you gotta learn to love the arrow the tunnel whatever the metaphor
1: <laughs> right okay this is less a compare and despair of my own but more a curiosity you have landed on some big podcasts. I know you're friends with Tim, of course, after all these years. Dax Shepard, you were on Sam Harris. I'm just so curious. A, do you ever get nervous going on these big shows for these interviews? And then B, is it a different experience with all these different hosts? Like, does each show these big shows that I think many of us subscribe or listen to right what's it like for you because you actually landed them I only dream about them I only prepare for them as a conceptual (laughs) well I first have to say I am a
0: huge (laughs) fan of your podcast oh thank you Neville and so this is just as great an honor for me oh thank you secondly yeah I totally get nervous and I over prepare maybe not over prepare but I definitely Come on, like you saw, I have like yeah, AJ brought papers. I like got papers, papers,
1: pencils. I haven't notes. had
0: to use them at all because you're such a good interviewer. But does it help you? Let's say, like you were on Dax Shepard. That's a big deal, and you right. probably
1: didn't know Dax personally, right?
0: As you mentioned, a lot of it is serendipity. He is a big fan of Sam Harris, just like Tim, who I met very early on. Sam Harris, I had emailed when he wrote his very first book, so we had a relationship. And he had me on a couple of times and then Dax had heard me on Sam Harris and that led to me being on Dax. And I was nervous about Dax Shepard because he's a loose cannon, like you don't know know. what he's going to ask. You don't know where it's going to go. So you just have to let go and hope. And actually talking about things that could have turned out badly, that turned out okay, He, like you, when I go on, you know, we have a little chat beforehand and then you start to record. That's like 99% of podcasts. So I was waiting on Zoom. He comes and sits down. He's like, hey, what's up? And I thought this was pre-talk. So I'm like, my (laughs) office is super hot. So I took an ice pack and I put it down my pants. and, (laughs) And we talk about that for like two minutes. And then I'm like, so when are we starting? He's like, oh, we've been recording. I'm like, what the hell? Oh, so uh, it could have been a disaster, but people found it, like, you know, charming. I found something. it
1: really funny. Yeah, I was like, go AJ. I'm like, way to just meet him at that little fun <laughs> factoid. You know, I actually I actually gave you a hat tip because I'm like, I don't have the courage. So it's funny that you didn't know you were recording. I did not have the
0: courage. Because was it was just really doing funny, it, yeah. a little
1: funny. <laughs> 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 and the thing is, I could so relate because – Yesterday in New York City, it was 91 degrees Oof. and humid. Our AC doesn't work. And I thought about you in that moment. I'm like, AJ sat there with an ice pack to record. <laughs> and I would have done the same thing. Yeah, it's you good can't for the turn on the AC too. when you're doing a podcast. Right,
0: right. So that was some puzzle solving right there. How to, how to keep so cool.
1: You actually did bring notes today. And I said before we were actually recording, I said, I just want to know about the notes. Sure. Does it help you to have notes in front of you? or Because for me, that would probably delay me, like if I had to be referencing notes or something?
0: Well, I'll tell you two things. One, if it's, you know, a good podcast like this one, I don't have to look at the notes. It's more of a life raft. And it's the yeah. same thing when I've given some TED Talks and told stories at The Moth. And those are super stressful because they don't want you to write things down. But I always write it down and keep it in my back pocket. So it's always yeah. there. And I've never had to use it, but I just know. And then this when I write things down you are so Love good I'm that you're just you, like peeking over them well you can <laughs> uh, happy to look at it. notes it's so it, cool you would do it better than me but to me the key is to break it up into sections so that they're easy to find oh, i always forget to mention oh, so what's in like, the book
1: like, yeah what's in the book big themes what else adventures adventures That's so fun
0: and then like reception so far yeah. so i can Tout that other people like it, the social right. proof.
1: Such as the New York Times calls it. A romp, both fun and funny. <laughs> so, but I'm ching. We <laughs> well, use the Thank notes. you. I like that your gnome to puzzle is one down.
0: One Week. down, yes. One
1: down. Like, is Saturday, there more one to down it? Sat- one down Saturday.
0: Well, another thing about writing a book is how do I start it? That's always a puzzle. And this crazy situation happened. And when it happened, I'm like, okay, this could work as a start. And I'll just tell the anecdote quickly. Tell the
1: anecdote and tell what qualifies as a starting quote to a book. Like what criteria does it need to meet?
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, So both. The anecdote is that a few years ago, I appeared as the answer to a clue in the New York Times crossword puzzle. And as a word nerd, this was like the highlight of my life. You know, my wedding was pretty good, but this was the holy grail. And then my brother-in-law emailed me, and he did congratulate me. I will give him that. But then he pointed out correctly that it was the Saturday New York Times puzzle that I appeared in. And if you know the puzzles, they get harder and harder throughout the week. (laughs) So here's the compare and
1: despair. It's compare
0: and despair. Great
1: point. Because Saturday's
0: not good enough now. No, Saturday. It's like
1: a life achievement. You're in the
0: I know. I should have been so (laughs) over the moon. And yet I'm like, oh, yeah, all these answers are totally obscure and no one <laughs> knows who they are. And that was his point. It's like, this is not a compliment. So I actually told that story on a podcast and it happened. One of the New York Times crossword makers was listening. And so a coincidence, How like was you, you listening?
1: Say, what podcast was that?
0: It was a Stephen Dubner. Oh. Not Freakonomics, but he had like a game show about what do you know? And so this guy heard it and decided to save me and put me in a Tuesday puzzle, which is not Monday, but Tuesday is huge, you know, much better than Saturday. And I don't belong there. But he put you there. The grass is greener on Tuesdays, I guess. Grass is greener. Now it's going to be
1: greener on Monday. Will, Will, if you're listening. (laughs) God, I need give my Monday. Monday. <laughs> need I will not Monday. die happy in oh, Philly. I... Oh, okay. You're going to tell me about the opening anecdote, what bar it has to cross.
0: That's a great question, and I've never been asked it. We'll talk about systematizing. When I was working in a magazine, I had sort of a list of 10 ways that make for interesting openings. And one of them is almost a list, so when I wrote a book about the encyclopedia, reading the encyclopedia when encyclopedia still existed, and so it was like a page-long list of all of the crazy things that I had learned just in chapter A, like about aardvarks and Abbott and Costello and Abyssinia, just like the weirdest facts from A. And that, I thought, could grab people because it's like a list I will say this is slightly related. What I find works in writing in general is you've got to mix it up. So you've got to mix up the length of the sentences, yeah. long and short. You want to mix up the type of sentences, questions, declarative sentences, mm-hmm. commands. And you want to mix up you know, whether you're writing a list or stable, you know, more traditional prose, which you do beautifully in your books. It's funny.
1: I think about the same things. It's like a little potpourri. Yeah. We just have some little facts, little anecdotes, little metaphor here and there, like sprinkling. Right. Especially yeah.
0: now when, you know, our brains are very much wired to look for changes. So yeah, That's a key for me of it has to grab the reader. It's possibly it's a mix. Possibly it's one where it's sort of a a twist, like Mm -hmm. a puzzle. Like, you know, you think you're reading about something else.
1: It's very Gladwellian as well. Like you start an open question and then... Right. All of a sudden, it's Steve's Jobs when he was a kid and he had a different name. And they're like, wow. Exactly. You know, that style, how he just puts like one, two, three, and then the puzzle unfolds. Right.
0: That's very attractive. Yeah, that is very engaging. I like that.
1: We'll be right back just after this. I like how you have a list of 10 that even when you are writing articles, because the articles, it's intense and you have to churn them out. You have to keep coming up with ideas. And right. That to have your framework of 10 ways you could start an article that you had developed.
0: And I don't even remember what they are. Two of them were the ones we talked about, yeah. but I don't remember what the others you gotta are. You got to solve that
1: puzzle because you got to pass that to your sons as well. Yeah.
0: And what about you and how you start a book? What do you think of when you start one?
1: I like to start the book funny. No one's ever asked me that, AJ. (laughs) Well,
0: I got the the idea from someone else. (laughs) It's true, though. No one's asked. I like to start
1: with the moment of being in the problem and its dialogue, both pivot and Free time, at least, started with this moment of being in the belly of the beast, the belly of the problem beast. So with Pivot, it was a series of internal monologue of, I must be crazy. I don't know what's wrong with me. Why can't I figure out what's next? I'm never going to be happy. And it was just this chain of thoughts that one might have when they have a perfect on paper job, but feel restless. And then with free time, I just knew very early on how it was going to open, which is this text exchange I had with my friend of like, I want to burn it all down. (laughs) And I literally describe, I'm sitting there on a Tuesday and I tell my friend, I want to burn it all down. And I'm eating ice cream and I'm depressed and I'm on the couch. And just, I feel that I want to highlight the moment that I know so many people can relate to. Yes. And I always, with my books, I look for the thing that a person is going to say to their friend. So it has to be not in author speak, not in biz speak. It has to be the language somebody uses with a friend where the friend goes, I call it book Rx what book will the friend prescribe? Uh-huh. So if somebody says, God, I just don't know what's next. Oh, well, you got to read Pivot by Jenny Blake. Or if they say, oh, I just want to burn it all down in <laughs> my business, or I'm totally overwhelmed. Oh, you got to read Free Time. And so I try to identify in their language what the problem that they would tell their friend. And it just cannot be in marketing biz speak. That's so crucial. Oh, I love
0: that. Yeah, yeah, that is huge. I think that was one of the other times, like an anecdote, a moment yeah. that the reader can relate to completely and that exemplifies the problem. I love that.
1: There's another skill that you have just as we start to wind our way down, uh, sadly, because I could just sit here all day with you.
0: Why not? Until we get COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, we're in our isolation chamber now. That's right. A windowless room where COVID's <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> you are really courageous, it seems, about reaching out to people. And I appreciate with all your books, the level of access that you achieve in terms of who you're able to interview. So I just love that you went like straight to the top of interviewing Will Shorts, the New York Times. I'm not going to mess up his official oh,
0: title, yeah. but. I don't even know. New York Times Puzzle Master is what we are called.
1: all these legends. Do you ever have, I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or just a shyness about reaching out to these people, or are you pretty bold about you'll reach out to anybody? How do you get them to actually agree to talk to you?
0: Yes, I definitely have the imposter syndrome sometimes, and I have to do the acting as if, like as if I'm bold, and then I become a little more bold. I do try to also convince myself, which is partly a delusion that this is good for them. I try yeah. to remind myself, you know what, they want to get their word out. And hopefully, a lot of people will read this book. So I try to convince myself, this is not necessarily an imposition, maybe I'm doing them a favor, even though sometimes not. And then just being okay with the rejection, because I'm lucky enough that I got some great people for this book and others, but I got a bunch of people who said no. So, you know, what you see is just the yeses. So you're getting a biased view of, because I don't write about all the people who said right. no. <laughs> That's the next book. <laughs> we'll it for the next it's, one. Actually, it's funny because I wrote a book about gratitude and I had this long acknowledgments, you know, pages long of all oh, the people. right, who helped naturally
1: me. you would need to. Usually, yeah. like even goes in an appendix online
0: or something. But I thought if I, you know, were in a crumpy mood, I could have written a no thanks, like an anti-acknowledgments, <laughs> like no oh, thanks to all the people who didn't return my calls. Funny, it might be right? Interesting. Or you would
1: need to thank them for not returning your call because, right? It
0: led to it this. led to something else. Great
1: point. Do you think you're going to stick with the quest format? You landed on this a while ago. It sounds like maybe even your Esquire pieces were these yeah, personal yeah. quests. Have you always had this in you? Like, how did this become your style?
0: I'd always loved the genre because there's mm-hmm. a writer named George Plimpton who did it with sports a lot. He would join a, a professional baseball or football team. I loved a book called Nickeled and Dimed by Barbara yeah. Ehrenreich. So she worked as a waitress and a hotel maid. So I've always loved it. A lot of times people say, write what you know, but I felt I didn't know very much. I'm highly curious, but I didn't have like, you know, if I were going to write a memoir about my parents, they're quirky characters, but no, they weren't spies or, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) That you know of. That's true. Yeah. Maybe that will be the next book.
1: That's the fact fact finding book.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, I felt I had to sort of create interesting circumstances and explore it that way and then write about that.
1: And then your wife seems pretty good-humored, too, that she kind of goes along with.
0: I am so grateful for her (laughs) because I get lots of emails. Luckily, readers say, you know, your wife is a saint because she's a great balance. You know, it's almost like if I could have written a character that would be the straight person, you know, the sort of, I know, I'm not going to act like, you know, <laughs> we're in biblical times. So it, it creates a contrast. Yeah.
1: Well, okay. I don't know why that took me back full circle to the beginning, but, oh, because your wife thinking about delegation, did you get a whole influx of inquiries after you were in four hour work week and even times after you've been on these big podcasts, do you get a whole flurry of stuff that comes in?
0: yeah. I am glad I did this. For a while, I had on my website, I get, I'm sorry if I can't answer all my Mm. emails. And then I decided- There's only so
1: much treadmill time you can do. Yeah.
0: But I also decided that was kind of a a snobby. It wasn't a good look. So I do actually try to respond to every email, even if it's only, you know, thanks so much, you made my day. Mm. So that's probably something I should be outsourcing-
1: I don't know. I really can see it both ways. I know people, it means something
0: to them to respond to each one, no matter how short. Well, I'm in a lucky position because I could, if I have one of the outsourcers do it, it's almost like you know, right. You're living wrote, your message. When I wrote about outsourcing, like this is exciting to get an email. I don't know, exciting, but it, it right. fits in with the brand of outsourcing. It does.
1: Yeah, that's true. Like, especially if it was warm, if it was right. warmly crafted. Yeah, from even your better VA. than something I would like. Can you imagine if your VA was like, Hi Joe, thanks so much for writing. I checked out your website. I love what you're up to. And you <laughs> actually gave them the assignment to like
0: add warmth, you know. That's a good one. Thanks, Jenny. I'm I'm going to do that. That That's
1: a good experiment.
0: Yeah. Like they're going to be the best correspondence with readers ever. Like take it to a new level. A next level.
1: Yes. And then I always like to say, and part of their charge would be to say, I'll make sure AJ sees this. Right. And like, I'm going to personally carry your email to AJ. And by the way, (laughs) <laughs> like, oh, and I found this article for you related to what you asked him about. I mean, it would just so interesting, like, to roll out the red carpet. But you're not the one doing it, but you're the one
0: right? As part creating
1: of that feeling for them to email.
0: That you know, is fun. Well, I will say when I wrote the Thanks a Thousand book, which was about gratitude, as part of the marketing, I announced on my website I was going to write a thousand handwritten thank you notes. And I didn't really think through how much a thousand That's is a lot
1: did you do so it?
0: I, it took me a year and a half, and I personalized them all wow. so they had you know, I asked them to write about themselves so I could personalize it, so I could only do like three or four really a day. Intense. It was a pain in the ass, pain in the hand. Uh, <laughs> pain <in> the hand. <laughs> it, was, it was also awesome. I felt so connected to the readers, and I loved learning about what they responded to and about their lives and their weird requests like, draw a dog eating a taco. I'm <laughs> oh my like, gosh. all right, I'll try. I'm not an artist. but uh, I have to say,
1: one of my best friends to this day is because I sent her a postcard 10 years ago. She said thank you for one of the books.
0: So you responded back? I used
1: to send postcards. Yeah, I used to.
0: And then she responded and then? Yeah,
1: and then later, like, just through a whole string, but there was this origin point of a postcard that made her kind of pause and say, I love that and I want to run a business like that, that involves, like, these nice touches, you know? Oh, so
0: you inspired her?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. And now she inspires me all the time and it's very reciprocal. That She's as cool. incredible of a person, but it's like the power of a postcard. You don't know. That's don't a know great story.
0: What's the name of her
1: business? Zing Collaborative. Her name is Sarah oh, Young. Yeah. She's a guest on this podcast. Yes, I think I've heard yeah, her. But yeah. I feel a little sad because now I'm not necessarily sending postcards.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you did your job. You inspired someone. I know. Someone. It
1: goes in waves. It goes in waves. Yeah, you doing other things. I noticed that. Like I mean, I sent our friend Doria, you know, a thank you card with my wax seal. I love analog old school things. Right. Like I still read the inky newspaper and I love using a wax seal. It just is a moment of surprise. It's right. like the exclamation mark.
0: Well, oh. can I make a connection for you? Which sure. Is my friend David Sachs. I don't know if you know him. Sounds very familiar. He's a fantastic writer and he wrote a book on analog stuff. And he's got a new one coming out in a couple of months. It's called Analog is the Future. And I think you and him would have a great time. I would love to
1: interview him if you don't want. Okay, David Sachs, Analog is the Future. Because I
0: think I tagged his
1: book as, yes, and it has little cutouts on the front cover. I just stumbled across it and I thought it'd be fun to talk about that. That'd be amazing. Thank you so much, AJ. He's a great guy. Well, this is so fun. If you could leave people, let's leave them with one, some experiment to try, a micro quest.
0: Oh, I love that idea. Like you say, you don't need to do a macro quest. A micro quest is fine. I might try one that really had an impact on me from the year of living biblically was just trying to go a week without gossiping. I mean, some gossip is good for evolutionary reasons, like to warn people against really bad actors. But 90% of the gossip I was doing or still do is not helpful. And it makes you feel good in the moment, but it makes you feel icky in the long term. So yeah, try not saying negative things about other people for a week and see how you feel.
1: That's such a good one. Oh, I love it. I even try New York City. It was many years ago, but I realized I was being very judgmental and critical in my mind. It wasn't gossip, (laughs) but I was looking at people and not thinking very good thoughts. And then now I try to just like see the good, see the good and not just critique people in my head because that means that's how we're treating ourselves.
0: Right. That's a good one.
1: And then just in case, I don't know what this has been so fun to cover so much ground for pivot and possibly free time. So with free time, the final question, as you may know, is if you could give people permission To do something differently or drop something altogether, what would it be in addition to dropping gossip?
0: I like to give myself permission not to keep up with the details of every news story because I think it's bad for my mental health and productivity. And it's bad for the world because if I'm following every in and out of a news story, I'm not looking at the big picture Mm -hmm. of how I can help the world best. So, You might think that you're doing your civic duty, and I do think you've got to keep up in the big picture stuff. But yeah, like following every twist and turn of the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. Oh my god!
1: Talk about gossip.
0: Yeah, I know it feels so good in the moment.
1: I was actually so shocked that I felt dirty. I felt gross watching it. This is disgusting. Like this is just two people throwing each other under the bus. Like I couldn't stand it. I know. What do we know? We don't know what really happened. And it just feels so, oh, yeah, that one's really. I know. And it's so
0: tempting, you know. Mm -hmm. Salacious. It's like
1: as if it's written. Someone said there was this meta commentary that it's as if you're watching a scripted show as it's being developed. Like it's as if the reality is already creating the scripted drama that is going to follow do you know what i mean <laughs> it does seem like <laughs> that. so weird
0: yeah i know it's gonna be on netflix in like three months as a drama sure. you know it will be of course <laughs> how could impossible. it not be
1: oh my gosh well aj this was such a joy thank you for being here my in person pleasure thank risking you risking your life
0: that's podcast right podcast with me. That is right. It's worth wow. it. Wow. Highest it's worth compliment it. on earth.
1: Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Such a delight.
1: Likewise. some big thanks to everybody who's here listening. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Pivot Podcast. Hasn't it always?